0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 50 of Greater Than Crabmeat. I'm here with the lovely and talented Jamie Hampton.
1: Thank you, Caroline. And this is the 50th episode of Greater Than Code. Um, and I'm here with Rain Henricks.
2: Hello. Thank you. And I am here with Lorena Mesa.
1: And it may have been a while, but today we have a
3: fantastic person we'll be chatting with today. Steve Klavnik works at Mozilla, is on the core Rust team, and leads the documentation team. He is a frequent speaker at conferences and is a prolific open source contributor, previously working on projects such as Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Welcome, Steve. We're excited to have you today.
4: Yeah, thanks so much. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Steve, we'd like to open up the show with getting to know our guests a little bit better, getting to know the person behind the public profile. And we generally start with the question, what are your superpowers and when did you discover them?
4: That is an interesting question. I actually have a story about this, which is I once had the worst superpower ever. I no longer have it, though. A long time ago, I used to shave my head into a mohawk and then I let it grow out. And so it kind of I wore it down to the side instead of being up and spiked. So it kind of looked just like I had part of my head shaved. This was also ended up being around the time that Skrillex became popular as a musician. And since I also wear dark rim glasses <laughs> and all black, people used to joke that I looked like Skrillex. Now, at one time I was living in LA and a friend of mine was working at a music startup and he had a party to go to at Skrillex's record label, and there was a chance that Skrillex was going to be there. And so he invited me along because he thought that would be really funny if we could get a photo of me and Skrillex to like, you know, be like, Steve is different than Skrillex. She's not actually the one. So I walked into this party and I described it as having the most boring superpower ever, which is I could tell who knew Skrillex and who did not know Skrillex at that party. Because the people that did know Skrillex would look at me and just be like, oh my god, what a fanboy. This is so dumb. And all the people who (laughs) didn't know Skrillex would look at me and be like, is that Skrillex? So you could just like see either like total contempt or total like hopefulness in their eyes of everyone I saw at this party. And so that was my totally useless superpower. I no longer have that haircut. So I don't get the comparison anymore. But it was pretty hilarious at the time.
3: Just because I have to know, was there anyone that you were surprised when they looked at you with big hopeful eyes hoping I, that you were Skrillex.
4: I didn't really know anybody that was at this thing, so it was mostly just like a Saturday barbecue at this record label, so that wasn't really like a... I didn't know anyone except for the friend that brought me.
2: I'm sorry, so. I'm just trying to imagine Skrillex at a Saturday barbecue, because that doesn't <laughs> seem like his... Like the place.
0: <laughs> the barbecue yeah. sauce on his shirt, yeah. <laughs> big smear across his face. <laughs>
3: I mean, mean, hey, it's L.A., you never know, right? I'm hoping you were in Echo Park, because I love saying Echo Park, like Echo Park.
4: Yeah, this is in downtown, unfortunately, so...
0: So what about today, Steve? I mean, you still have superpowers, right? You're still superhuman.
4: If I had to pick my superpower today, I guess it would be one of continuing to post on the internet far after I should stop, like... I should be able to get away from the Internet, but I seem to be uh, everywhere all the time. And that is sometimes very useful and sometimes very harmful.
0: I have to confess that years ago, I followed you on Twitter and you just overwhelmed my tweet stream. So now you're (laughs) on a list and I don't follow you anymore.
4: Yeah, it's cool. I used to tell people when I would meet them, they'd be like, I follow you on Twitter. And I was like, I'm really sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it is twitter is like just a stream of consciousness for me basically and so it is a lot and i tend to follow people who also tweet a lot and so it's it's totally weird how there's these like different segments of twitter so yeah that's seems good
3: <laughs> so mental note: watch out when 280 characters are starting an ab testing because oh you may completely overwhelm my tweet
2: yeah <laughs> can i can i tell a funny twitter story it's a short one a friend of mine uh was talking to one of his friends, and he said, do you know Rain H? And his friend said, oh, the Twitter socialist? So I really feel like my brand is getting out there, and I'm really happy about that.
1: (laughs) That should be in your bio for sure. Yeah.
2: I tweeted out earlier today, can't wait to start all my
4: tweets with dash 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 PGP signature dash 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 and just, like, sign all my tweets with the extra space.
0: I think my favorite suggestion for how to use all the extra characters was bringing back Usenet Sigs. (laughs)
1: My Twitter story is that the first time I was going through a phase where I was like putting a lot of jokes in my bio. And my first conference that I was a speaker at was AlterConf. And I had totally forgotten that a few days before I had changed my Twitter bio to Christian Husband Father. And so, like, everyone who saw my first conference talk and then went to follow me on Twitter just saw, like, my face, and it said Christian Husband Father.
0: Nice. I, um, I tweeted out a job opening at Stitch Fix and um, was reaching out specifically to marginalized people in tech, and then my director pointed out that my Twitter name was Abrasive AF.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I like to read AF as as foretold.
0: Nice. I don't know. That's
1: good. As fortunate.
0: So Steve, you've been a presence, a very strong presence in the open source community for a very long time, for as long as I've been aware of you at least, and a prolific contributor. I often wondered if you ever slept. Um, what got mm-hmm. you started in contributing to open source?
4: So this was basically entirely by accident. So long ago in Ruby World, uh, there was a person who went by the name Why the Lucky Stiff, like W-H-Y, the question. And then he dropped off the face of the planet. And I had really, really admired his work. He actually came to the town where I was living at the time, but I couldn't show up. And I was like, oh, I'll just catch him some other time. And then he disappeared. And so I never actually got to meet or talk to Why. But... He disappeared and I thought his projects were really important. At the time, I was really heavily focused on programming education and like teaching people how to code. And that's always something I've cared about. But at the time, that was like pretty much everything. And so his biggest project and in my mind, like the thing that all the rest of his work was building up to was this thing called Hackity Hack. And Hackity Hack was basically like a Ruby IDE, but it also contains interactive lessons for learning how to program in Ruby. So you actually started off, there was an entire DSL just for logo. So you started off by like writing logo code, but like in Ruby instead, and then it would do all the logo stuff. And then you know eventually it gave you the power of the full language. And so that was really, really important. And I didn't want it to die. And so whenever he disappeared, the broader Ruby community kind of said like, all right, well, who's going to pick up all of his old projects. And I decided that I wanted to help whoever came along to work on Hackney Hack. So, I basically said to the person who is handing out the like commit bits on these projects, I was like, I don't want to be in charge of this, but I would love to help whoever comes along and does want to be in charge of this. And he said, "Cool, here you go." And then no one else showed up. Um, so I kind of just de facto became in charge of Hackney Hack. I had a lot of struggles with it at first. One of the things about Hackity Hack is that it's technically a C program with a Ruby interpreter embedded inside of it. So it reached really deep into the guts of Ruby. And this was Ruby 1.8. And for Ruby 1.9, they completely rewrote the interpreter entirely. So all that code was completely invalid. Plus, on the Mac, it used bindings to the old Carbon APIs. And I had just gotten a shiny new MacBook that had the first version of macOS that no longer contained those deprecated AIs. So the first six months of working on Hackity Hack was me just trying to get the darn thing to build at all. And as somebody who did Ruby all the time, I was not really that well-versed in fixing C compilation errors and all of that kind of shenanigans. So that was really the initial part of it. And that sort of work eventually led to me talking at conferences. So somebody was like, hey, you should submit a talk to RubyConf about this. And I was like, do people want to hear about this at a Ruby conference? I don't know. And so I submitted it, and people were so excited, I got asked to speak at a couple other conferences about it. And so from there, I sort of continued working on um, WISE projects. And so that's sort of the origin story.
0: When I started with Ruby in 2007 or 2008, one of the first resources I came across was WISE Poignant Guide. Mm -hmm. And that was instrumental in me learning Ruby. And if you haven't seen it, you should track it down. I think it's still available all over the place. But it's, it's a very fun. It's probably the most fun introduction to a programming language I've ever seen. Um, it's illustrated with cartoons. It's very tongue in cheek. It's very whimsical, but it really gets to the heart of what makes Ruby Ruby. And, um, it's an amazing resource. I miss why he did a tremendous amount for the Ruby community in his formative years. And I hope that wherever he is now and whatever he's doing, that he's successful and happy.
4: Same. There actually, to sort of continue that story briefly, eventually I had to stop working on Hackity Hack and Shoes, the underlying GUI toolkit. There are still some people working on Shoes now, but Hackity Hack is effectively dead. And part of that was kind of, I had a lot of conflicting feelings about working on this project because like, you're basically taking someone else's life's work and making it your life's work. And so I spent a lot of the time in the early days being like, what would Y want me to do with this project? But if he was gone, like, and it's my project now, then I should have done what I wanted to do with it. And I don't know, I just had really complicated feelings. So yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of gone from all that stuff now. And that was like a really big complicated. I have lots of feels. <laughs> and eventually he did come back and publish another work, which was called I had no title, but I call it closure. And, um, I also gave, ended up giving a talk about it because similar to the point of guide, it is full of whimsy. And instead of teaching you about programming, it's more personal. It's more of a pure story than it is a, a learning programming kind of thing.
0: I think one of the things that that story illustrates, Steve, is that with a lot of projects, at least in the Ruby world, and I imagine in other communities as well, they started as, you know, one person efforts. And eventually people lose interest or people move on. And there isn't a lot in terms of succession planning for these things. That's why organizations like Ruby together have been formed to say, Oh my God, this person who was working on, you know, Ruby gems or whatever is no longer contributing anymore. And this is really critical to our infrastructure. Somebody's got to do something. Do you have thoughts on, on succession planning?
4: Yeah. My thoughts are mostly I am. Often the successor and then end up abandoning it myself. So that's what happened with Packety Hack. Uh, that also happened with Rescue. So that was originally written by Chris Swanstrath at the GitHub and then went to Terrence Lee and then went to me. And now I've like handed it off. Uh, and all of those things were like a, a situation where it was sort of like, at some point in time, I showed up and was like, "I want to work on this now." And they're like, "Thank God somebody wants to do this here, have the keys of the kingdom." And so, yeah, it's hard, and there's there's no plan. It's tough to even have a plan though, because like you can't know what people are going to have the time and energy to work on, both like personally, but also like professionally. So part of the reason why I've been able to do this for so long is that I've always worked at jobs where working on open source is part of that, comp- like part of the job. And so if that was not true, I definitely would not have gotten nearly as involved in open source. And that's like a huge barrier, I think, to a lot of people being able to work on open source is like I made the analogy before. It's like you don't ask a jackhammer to continue jackhammering the sidewalk on the weekend for fun. You know, like this is like our professional job, but it's also a thing we do like for fun. And so it's hard to know what life has in store in the future. So like, I don't know, succession is tough.
0: That brings to mind something, Steve, a criticism that I think Shanley makes of open source quite a bit is that it is a capitalist exploitation of free labor. Do you Absolutely. have an opinion on that?
4: Yeah, there's an old article, an old interview of me that made the Internet really mad a while back where I said that open source is a mega capitalist conspiracy. And what what I meant by that was not like a conspiracy in the sense of a bunch of men huddled around a table in some dark room making evil plans. Big open but source. Just that Yeah, not, not that, but like a group of peoples whose interests align them to work together against other people. And this actually goes back to the foundations of open source. So open source itself, like again, part of the reason why I said open source specifically is that open source was created as a way for companies to profit off of free software. And it was deliberately neoliberalized in general, but like made apolitical and amoral and less restrictive so that companies could get richer. There's a really great article in The Baffler called The Meme Hustler about this that goes through some of this history. It was like originally created by mega libertarians so that companies could steal your work.
0: You said apolitical. Um, Do you really believe that?
4: That is what they presented as. I don't believe that anything is apolitical, personally. I think that liberalism presents itself as being apolitical as a political strategy.
3: I think the the metaphor to go back to what you were talking about earlier around the idea of a jackhammer. And really, we don't give pause to think about the, where's that line, right? Where is me first? Where's my labor? And if you bring that with you, or there's kind of a continuity because it is a part of your identity. I'm curious, can you give us some ideas, you know, having been the successor, Steve, what are some lessons from the trench that you've learned if you were talking to someone who might be taking on that role of successor when there isn't a clear succession plan? And maybe if not lessons, maybe just some, Things to observe or watch for.
4: I think that part of it is knowing why you want to get involved in open source in the first place. So it's really easy to just like want to contribute to open source because that's like a cool thing or something, or like maybe people told you that it's fun. But I think that if you have a strong understanding of why you want to do it, then that can be helpful in preventing things like burnout. It could also induce burnout. Uh, so. For example, the reason I work on open source is and generally sort of what my career trajectory has been is that I want to work on increasingly bigger and bigger things that affect more and more people to have more and more impact on the world. And so like for me, that meant that I work. so like rescue, for example, I don't actually care about rescue. Like I don't have a passion for job queue server projects, but I do know that rescue is being used by hundreds of thousands of people and had no support whatsoever. So I figured I could do a lot of good by getting involved uh, with Rescue and helping out. Um, And it's also sort of why I've gone through, like, I used to work on applications, and then I started working on libraries, and then I started working on frameworks, and now I'm working on a programming language. And all of those things are kind of moving down this stack of being, like, more fundamental and therefore reach more people. So if I write a web application in Ruby, only my users of my web app are going to, you know, be affected by it. If I write a library, then some other people that are in Ruby will be able to actually use my work. So I go from an audience of like basically no one to an audience of a lot of people. And then if I write a framework that gets popular, a larger chunk of the programming community gets affected. And if I work on a language, then literally every user of that language is affected by my work. So that's just me. But I think that like knowing why you want to do it can like help.
1: Uh, I was really struck by what you said earlier about taking someone else's life's work and then making it your life's work. And I wonder if you have any advice on like how to hit the right balance, I guess, between being respectful to the original creator, but also bringing your own unique perspective to what you're doing.
4: Yeah. I think that some of it is, I was reading a blog post recently. I wish I remembered whose it was, but I can't remember it at the time. But the point of the post was that like communities are formed by creating shared values. If you want to work on another project and sort of bring your sort of attention to it, I think that by understanding the values that the project was originally created with can help you like figure out what your answer to this situation was. I so for example ha- me. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. It might have been. I I will find it later. Maybe you can look at the show notes and maybe we'll laugh because it actually was you. But like, so for example, taking over to Hackity Hack, like wise core values were like fun and whimsy and learning. And so like if I had made Hackity Hack a like thing where there was an ad on the sidebar that was like, take your programming lessons with whoever and started like making money off of it. Right. That would be like an inauthentic continuation of the project because it would be going against what they originally sort of like wanted So the way that I would express fun and whimsy and learning is like different than the way that Y would do so. So it is like making my own project to a degree, but it's still within that like original framework and vision. And I mean, you know, sometimes things are just broken and you have to start over. So I also think that if your vision for the project is significantly different then like forking it and renaming can be a really great strategy to making a project your own while saying like explicitly, like we have a significant enough break from the past that we're now turning it into this other thing. And so I think that also can be like a useful tool. Like you don't have to be totally bogged down by the weight of your predecessors. Like if it's yours, you can do what you want with it. And sometimes that just means moving on. And sometimes that means really significant changes. And it just, it just really depends.
0: Do you think that That happens in response to communities becoming toxic?
4: I have definitely seen it happen in response to communities becoming toxic, for sure. IO is the latest instance of that that I can think of. It's all just hard. And the other funny thing about this, which I'm sure all of you appreciate, but I think it's worth reiterating, is that none of this has had anything to actually do with the programming or code or textual aspect of these projects, right? Like, that's one of the reasons why this is difficult. Like, I often think... If you go to school for this job, you learn all these things, but those are not the actual skills that I use every day. And like I'm not trained in conflict resolution or management or, you know, like any of these kinds of things that are like really, really important to running these kinds of projects.
0: That's why this podcast exists. We don't yeah. talk about tech. We talk about what it takes to make tech and the people Absolutely. behind it. So that's right in line with our values. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I I thought it was worth reemphasizing, even though, yeah, it's clearly already true in this room.
0: One of the things that we talked
2: about last week that everyone will get to hear soon when we release that episode is how do you organize a large group of people in a non-top-down hierarchical authoritarian way? Um, So let's say you have an engineering group that has 150 people in it. How do you get work done? How do you collaborate in an effective way without resorting to totalitarianism?
4: There's this article that is very old, and I always get the dude's name wrong. I always think it's one of them, and it's always the other. So it's probably incorrect, but I'm going to go with Bakunin because I think that's right, but I might be wrong. So, a famous quote from a noted anarchist, Bakunin, um, back in the 1800s. And the essay is called, What is Authority? And authority is obviously a question that anarchists are really concerned with. And basically, the famous part of that essay is basically like, there is a difference between leadership and like authority. So you can lead as a leader. A lot of people call this leading by example, but like the example he uses is a bootmaker. So he's like, if I needed a new pair of boots and I go to a bootmaker to buy them and I ask his opinion on what boots I should buy, is that like him having authority over me or am I like taking into account the work that, you know, they've done and uh, that's like a form of, of leadership. So like this person has has worked to make boots their entire life. Therefore, they have expertise. So I'm going to follow their lead when it comes to these boots or whatever. Falling back to just like I'm in charge and therefore you must do what I say is not an effective like way to lead people. At least I don't believe that it's an effective way to lead people. The best way to do it is to like demonstrate what you want other people to do to inspire them to do the same. And so I feel like that is a, a much less authoritarian means of, of leadership rather than just like, I'm the boss, so do it.
0: Recently, as of the recording date of this podcast, got into a Twitter battle with Robert Martin, better known as Uncle Bob, and mm. struck me that we hold certain people in our various communities as leaders, even when they don't demonstrate leadership capabilities or even good judgment. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he's a jerk face. And also solid isn't very good. Don't at me. (laughs) So I believe I was involved with someone adding
4: you on this very topic. So I feel you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So how do you address when leadership is granted to someone or they're grandfathered into a leadership position when they really have no business being a leader?
4: Yeah, I think this is extremely tough. And it leads to all kinds of problems. I think that one of the best ways to defend against this is to not give one individual that kind of status in the first place. And this also ties in, honestly, to the secession thing we were talking about earlier. Like, a long time ago, there was a Ruby conference in Athens, Greece. And I went there. I was really excited. And one of the things that some of the people there had told me, they were like, Steve, we're really worried about you. You really need to, like, take some time off and just, like, chill out. And they're like, the reason that this is true is that you do so much right now in the Ruby world. And if you burn out and disappear, then stuff is going to get bad. And so, like, if you can manage to, like, give away some of that, the system will overall be more sustainable. Like, they were simultaneously, like, concerned about me per- as a person, but also just about this, like, question of sustainability. So I think that when you have a, when you have these people who are leaders that have too much specific power, then that can lead into these kinds of situations where it's like, what do you do to remove them? They're the person in charge of everything. So like, you can't get rid of them. Or sometimes communities keep around people who are toxic, because they are so pivotal to the project that removing them would effectively be the death of the project. So the solution there is to not have been relying on one individual so heavily in the first place. And obviously, this is difficult when like Most open source projects are literally run by one person. So obviously, they just by default are completely in charge. But as projects grow, I think that not putting the the power in the hands of one person is most important. Like Basically, I I don't want to work on any project that has a BDFL anymore. I think that leadership model is inherently flawed.
0: Um, That's benevolent dictator for life. Yes. Didn't
2: something like this happen recently with the DSA with, and I've actually only ever seen his name, written? Danny for taunt, for uh,
4: It's not really inher- inherently about that. So ZSA is the Democratic Socialists of America while we're explaining acronyms. And they had a situation recently where uh, the Austin chapter elected a person who was a cop to be on their leadership. And so that became very controversial for a number of reasons. And so to me, it was more it was not so much about him having too much power. It was more of the question of like, can you put someone in charge of a socialist organization who is a police member? It was like a member of the police. And I mean, I guess that could be construed as police have too much power,
2: uh, in some sense, but, uh, yeah, I I was, for me, I was sort of more referring to the, the way that they went about trying to remove him from power and trying to deal Uh, with that situation.
4: Yeah. So part of the problem was that he was elected and then there was, there was like questions about whether or not he had covered up the fact that he was a cop. like, In his little advertisement for people to vote, he had said that he organized government employees uh, when he could have said organized police and things like that. And so then there's the question of like, okay, this is a democratically... It came out after the vote. So it's like, we have a democratically elected leader. Many people do not want him anymore. What do we do? And I don't follow the, the DSA close enough to fully appreciate the nuance of how that process went down, I do know that he eventually decided to resign and kind of complained about it as he did so.
0: It's one thing in formal organizations to have a structure like a no confidence vote or something like that. But I think a lot of the leaders, at least in open source, they're not there because they're elected. They're not serving at the... Oh, shit, what's the word?
4: Pleasure of the queen. They're they're not serving
0: (laughs) at the pleasure of, of their communities. They just happen to be the person who created something or they happen to be the person who stepped into that role or they happen to be the author of a popular book and you can't remove them.
2: And yeah. these communities are also generally built by people who have no idea how to manage communities like that. They just accidentally happened upon that role for other reasons.
3: Not to give an uplifting metaphor, but I do like to think of it as kind of like the race to the bomb or the barrel, right? I think when people get so passionate about things and you get – much more of a smaller group of people, very, very opinionated about things. That's regrettably how I kind of see that. I'm curious, have you ever experienced anything like that yourself, Steve? Or if not, how can you be mindful of observing, hey, we have someone who's grandfathered in, and how do you start a discourse to really push that idea to the top? Like, why are we doing this? How do we think about this? How do we try to maybe change our positions toward this pattern and move in a different direction?
4: Yeah, this is really tough because in many instances, the happy path here is that leadership is reflective enough to understand that this is happening and then address it. For example, Rust, the programming language that I work on, originally had a person who created it. His name is Graydon and Graydon is a wonderful person. And as such, he disliked the BDFL model, and so explicitly said, "like I am not the BDFL of Rust. Like that's not a person I want to be." And so, when it became bigger than him, he ended up creating a team of people to sort of share the the leadership responsibilities. And so, we had a core team for a while. That's pretty common on open source projects. And eventually, the core team became a bottleneck. I guess is the right way to put it. Like it turns out that the project was working so much, like so fast. That when you require all major decisions to go through even a group of, we had eight people at the time, that can become a significant hindrance. And so we actually restructured our governance so that now it's like a federated governance structure instead. So actually like 60 people who are in charge of Rust. And so that has enabled us to like, you know, move forward in a good way. But it also is kind of this like acknowledgement that like, okay, one person or a group of people has too much power. Let's figure out how to spread that around a little bit. The first one was because uh, he was expressly like mindful of this. The second transition was partially us recognizing it. I was at the, on the core team at the time and partially that enough people in the community were agitating for it that it like made sense to do so. And that's ultimately like the way that it happens if leadership is not insightful enough or also just doesn't care because they don't want to give up the reins you pretty much have to agitate for change. And if the powers of the be that don't want to listen to you, then there's the historical solution of a fork. And
2: that's happened to a lot of projects where you say, also okay. Known, sorry, also known as revolution.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> fork. It sounds like in the case of Rust, there was a strong sense of shared values going all the way from the originator to the core team to the group of 60 to the federation. Um, yeah. And then so he had a code what, of
4: conduct in the first commit, in the very first part of the repo, for example. So right. it was spelled out from the beginning.
0: And then in other cases, there's a mismatch either by other people coming into the community and a different idea of what the community values are that spreads maybe from the grassroots up. Mm-hmm.
4: And that can be both good and bad. So, you know, for a long time before Rust 1.0, we worried, like, we're like, we really like the community that we've built. But as we bring more people in... How can we be sure that they're not going to like be jerks? <laughs> Basically, you know, cause like sometimes that's like a thing, right? People get involved and then it turns out that you don't get along and things are bad. And so, uh, luckily there, every community has problems. So I'm not going to say that Rust is free of problems, but I, I guess I'm just saying like it's not just the leadership is bad. Therefore, I'm going to agitate for good things. Sometimes it can be. Leadership is good, but I'm a bad person, so I'm agitating for bad things. And you also have to deal with, you know, community members who who want to take the project in a direction that the rest of the people don't want to.
0: I worked at a lot of startups, and I've seen kind of a similar thing happen. Where at the beginning there's this sense of shared values, and then you start hiring a lot of people, and inevitably you hire a lot of Chads because the market's flooded with Chads. For those who don't know, Chad is our playful term for the 25-year-old software developer. Who has no awareness of, um, systems of oppression or other social justice issues is very focused on the code and believes in meritocracy. So as chads come into your organization, even well intentioned chads, you have a values drift, right? And I think some of that comes down to communities not knowing how to communicate their values, not knowing how to express their values in a way that new community members can evaluate maybe before joining and evaluate their own behavior as they get involved to make sure that they're fitting in with those cultural mores.
4: Yeah, I think that sometimes, too, it can get even more complicated in the sense that sometimes values are clearly articulated, but it feels like no one understands that that's true. So the way that I feel about Rails is that David has been extremely upfront about his values and where he wants the project to go, but people don't seem to like notice Like I got involved in Rails and I had a very different idea of what Rails should be and what it should work on. And that's like one of the reasons why I ultimately stopped working on Rails was I realized like, wait a minute, David has been saying for years what he wants this project to do. And I disagree with that. So what am I doing? And so I feel it's like very, very, it's like strange sometimes. And you realize that like there can even be like people who project values onto a project and they're not even the stated ones, even if it's like not actually muddy. Um, and this expresses itself in a number of different ways. too.
3: I'm a little curious because you mentioned that the core team started to recognize itself as a bottleneck. I'm curious because one thing I think that's interesting, so I'm pretty active in the Python community, is you might have people who've been working with a tool or working with a language for a long time, and they just don't have knowledge of where to go voice their concerns or at, or where they can bring their requests and asks. So I'm curious. Was this more of a self-directed, oh, we see ourselves to the bottleneck? Or was there kind of a push and pull from multiple places? Can you walk us through that a little bit?
4: Yeah. So part of the, the reason that this happened, it was a little bit of both, is sort of the short answer. The longer answer is, is that Rust institutes this process called the RFC process on major changes to the language. And now they can't be backwards compatible. So major additions to the language, I guess, at this point. And so historically speaking, the core team was in charge of accepting or rejecting any RFCs. So it was not just like a feeling that was true, but you could like literally look at the metrics of, oh, there are now 60 RFCs that are waiting for us to review. Oh, there are 100 RFCs that are waiting for us to review. Oh, there's 120 RFCs. Like we're clearly not keeping up with this influx of things that need to have decisions made on them. So we sort of already had structuralized the way that people like, wanted to make changes. And that made it easier to notice that this was actually happening. And so I think that's also... Again, this sort of goes back to this diffusion of leadership. Like, even people on the core team are required to write RFCs. No one gets to just make whatever changes they feel like it. Um, And so it's all, like, pseudo-democratically, you know, uh, designed in the first place. And so that's also helpful in terms of, you know, not letting things get off the rails. But yeah, it was really that that, like, the RFCs piling up was like, oh man, we clearly can't be the only people making the decision here.
1: I'm curious with a team of sixty people. Like, I totally get why that's convenient for not creating a bottleneck when you're giving so many people the keys. Like, how do you prevent like a single person from like making unilateral decisions that other people don't agree with?
4: Basically, to get slightly more into the details of how this works, because I think it's relevant. There still is a core team and our job is that I'm on. Uh, our job is basically cross cutting concerns and like big picture vision stuff. And then in theory, resolving ties if there are tiebreakers. And so like one of the requirements for spinning up a team on Rust governance is that a core team member has to be on the team. They start the team off. And this is partially to keep tabs in this kind of thing. But also, if your job is cross cutting concerns, you need to be paying attention to everything all the time. And if that was a whole core team's job, then that still would reintroduce the bottleneck. So the way that you do it is you like have someone whose job is basically like, this probably needs to be brought to other teams as well because this particular initiative is like equally about the docs team and the language team or like whatever and so making what sure that coordination happens.
2: What you're describing there sounds a lot like syndicalism.
4: Yes, it is. I don't say these things to those people and they don't know it. I I like to joke, (laughs) I like to joke that Rust is an anarcho-syndicalist project, but we just don't use those words at all because it's a structure that works. It's not really about like, it was never expressly that. And in fact, most of the people, I also should say like the Rust teams in general are, politically very ideologically diverse so it's not really about it's not like everybody on the rust team is like a super anarchist or whatever it just turns out that like people that think about how to diffuse power have some solutions for how to do that and so you use their ideas and modify them like we you know we've constantly evolved the way governance works and are going to continue to do so in the future
3: i actually am very very interested by you say I might be describing these things and we're seeing here some consensus saying, well, hey, is that anarchism? I'm curious, are you purposefully intentful on not using words that may have a political connotation when you're working in this, in maintaining a project or making decisions? If you are purposefully trying to stay away from language like that, I'm curious why you may try to stay away from language that might have a little bit of a political charge to it.
4: Yeah, I am expressly. Focused on not introducing this kind of thing into Rust spaces. And uh, there's multiple reasons for that. The first one is that you describe it as a charge. And that's true. I think that a lot of people, if it was described in those words, would never want to do it. But when it's not described in those words, do. And I care more about the doing than about using the right words. So like that is part of it. And so, yeah, it like goes back to the leading by example stuff for sure um, in the past to some degree. The other reason that I do it, honestly, is like, there's like two other good reasons. I'll do the boring one and then the interesting one. The second bo- one is boring is that like, it's actually like off topic, I think. So like, this is really complicated. And so I'm going to say it in broad terms and just acknowledge like, This might be a little weird, but like bringing express politics in that way into an open source project leads to derailment. And I don't mean that in the sense of any kind of politics, because, again, literally everything is politics. Like this is inherently politics. But when you use words that people have strong reactions to, it can distract from getting the goal done. And I don't always believe that that is the right way to do it. Like I generally think that I'm known as the person who's usually being too over the top about bringing these kinds of things into things. So I definitely agree that, like, different strategies work in different times and places, but I think that it would actually obscure getting the work done, basically, uh, is, is the second reason. And the third reason is because as someone who has relatively extreme political views, even though I hate describing them as extreme, given that I'm someone with a minority position on certain political at- things, it's simply self-defense. Like, I don't need people coming after me due to my personal politics. And one of the easiest ways to prevent harassment on this angle is to just like not ever actually use those words and just do my best. And then that way, you know, I take less crap for it. So I think those things are all kind of like intertwined.
0: That kind of um, leads into a question that someone in our Slack community has. Um, Before I get to that, I want to say greater than code is listener supported. And you can support our program and support conversations like we're having with Steve by going to patreon.com slash greater than code pledge at any level. You get access to our Slack community, which is wonderful. Um, We are also looking for sponsors. And this episode is actually a sponsored episode, sponsored by the Instrumental application and server monitoring platform. Instrumental's goal is to help developers answer application performance questions faster with a powerful query language, real-time metrics, blazing interface, and automatic metric collection. You can sign up for a free developer account at instrumentalapp.com. That being said, um, Steve, we had a question from someone in our wonderful Slack community mm-hmm. about whether you have opinions on whether anarchy is equally accessible to everyone or only accessible and available to a privileged class.
4: So I think this is also probably a good time to briefly mention that I don't consider myself to strictly be an anarchist. And this is probably too long to get into at the moment, but I used to and I don't anymore. And I definitely agree with the sentiment overall that there is a tendency on the left to rely on like what's effectively a meme culture. So it's like, oh, you recognize this book written by that one dude that one time, or like, you know, this slogan that has been around forever. And if you don't, you're like, not a real leftist. I'm like shaking my head while I'm saying this, basically. And like, this creates a culture of exclusion, um, specifically. And I think that that is definitely a problem um, on the left. It's it's also difficult, just in general, like, this comes across in programming a lot is that like jargon is simultaneously uh like necessary for people to be- have high bandwidth communication between experts but is therefore also exclusionary to non-experts and this is a question I've grappled with a long time with rest for example and that whole shenanigans like that's deliberately exclusionary because it's like once you get to a certain level on a topic you want to not constantly relitigate the basics so you invent jargon so that you know you're on the same page with someone But then when it becomes all about the jargon, you leave out all the people and you don't give people room to grow into it. So I definitely think that anarchism and other forms of leftism have a problem with being exclusionary. And I I don't think that it's intentions. But, you know, as we all know, that doesn't actually matter. Uh, It's just is.
0: Intentions are not magical.
4: Yeah, exactly. So, like, I think that understanding it's not intentional is a way to lead a path forward rather than an excuse for the way that it is currently. And so, yeah, to to some degree, that's why I try not to get super into the books things or like citing specific details about like, did you read this and that? Because then, you know, lots of people have written lots of books on lots of topics and they disagree with each other. And so you can get into like, I've had arguments with people that are basically both of us just citing books that were citing each other back at each other before. And that's boring and not interesting and not productive. So I definitely feel like the left needs to to work on this
0: as an issue.
2: It's like that scene in Goodwill Hunting in the bar. (laughs) Yeah,
0: definitely. What scene is that? Uh, So there's a scene where Matt Damon's character
2: um, encounters a pretty snotty uh, college bro dude who tries to humiliate Matt Damon's character's friend by being smarter. And then Matt humiliates him by being smarter. And it's all like, well, you know, you're in this year of history, so you probably read this book. Well, next year you're going to read this book, which will demolish the position of the previous book that you read. Yeah. Specifically, he wasn't even trying to be smarter. He was was repeating
4: an argument from a book as his own argument. And Matt Damon's character is like, oh, I saw you read that book, which is why you're parroting its argument. Well, guess what? In the future, you're going to learn that some other book demolishes. Yeah. So.
0: Do you think that bleeds over into the sort of jargon ideas, sort of like one-upmanship? Do you think that bleeds over into conflicts within communities, but also between programming communities?
4: Definitely. And it also bleeds into our leadership celebrity culture example, because, again, if jargon is exclusionary, a great way to be perceived as an expert is to create new jargon. Because then if your jargon catches on, you're the person who coined the term, and so you get to be the authority of it forever, and no one can ever question your interpretation of that particular thing, because you're the one who said it in the first place. JSON. Um, yeah. Or REST. Or, you know, SOLID, as we referenced earlier. No SQL. Um, yeah. And see and you, so, you
1: guys are saying jargon words and I can also say jargon words. <laughs> I'm true. actually thinking about how the person who coined the term gif thinks incorrectly that it's pronounced gif.
4: Right? <laughs> 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 <Yes. Yes>. um, <laughs>
1: don't don't at me.
4: And so this can definitely lead to lots of problems interpersonally. And so this is something I've been thinking about a lot which uh, I've been referring to as shit talking between programming language communities is that often new communities and their excitement of their new technology will create new jargon, and then people get old man at the cloud about it, and they don't like the new jargon, so then they get upset about the jargon and start criticizing it for no good reason. And this like breeds contempt, which I think is uh, very harmful to communities overall. I was about to do the there's a book thing, but maybe I'll explain it without referencing whose ideas this is, because again, we're trying to be non-exclusionary here. I read a thing one time and it pointed out this difference between like, you can express values in an active or a reactive way. And so like active values are all based on like, I believe X, I want to do Y. Reactive values are like, that person's values are dumb. And that's what my value is. So like a reactive value is is inherently about like, building your values off of what you perceive to be the problems with others values. So this is what I think that Rails got wrong with Node. And also like uh, as one of the examples of this situation, again, as somebody who's had a good job of articulating his values, DHH really values tearing down other programming languages and language communities to the point where like I have been on stage at a Ruby conference and been like, you all do know that like you're not the cool kids anymore, right? Like you're making fun of Java makes you sound really out of touch. Like it's it's just really bad. It's a bad look for like a number of different reasons.
2: At the and O'Reilly so, Conference with two thousand people.
4: Yeah. And so it's just like one of those things where this then gets perpetuated and causes like the repetition and that it, it fundamentally it creates an in-group. And it directs hate towards an outgroup. And if you want to become part of the in-group, you also performatively target hate at the outgroup uh, as a way to gain social currency. And that creates this really nasty feedback loop that is not only like abhorrent ethically, but also, I believe leads to incorrect technical decisions. And I think that's one of the reasons why Rails has kind of fallen behind the wayside. Because DHH expressly does not care about investigating other people's stuff, he misses out on a lot of things that are positive about those things that could help you know, build Rails, for example. And it seems like he's chilled out lately, incidentally, I've heard. Uh, so again, I'm also basing this on multi-years uh, ago situations with him. But like, one of the reasons I stopped working on Ruby is that I feel like it made me unhealthy as a person. And it's not because Ruby in general is not great and Ruby people aren't generally great, but there is just this culture of trash talking other projects. And it made me a jerk, frankly. And I didn't like it. And so I saw this opportunity with Rust to sort of like reboot how I interact with people in many ways, because like I didn't want to be a jerk. But like the environment was making me like my jerkish tendencies come out instead of making them go away. And so we've been really mindful in Rust World to like, like, I will just not say something if I don't like it instead of saying that it's the worst thing ever created, (laughs) basically. And that's just like a way healthier way to be for like all around in general for everyone involved.
1: I totally agree with everything you just said, Steve. And I think that negativity breeds so much more negativity around it. And people do this like not in the tech community, too. I'm like using real life with quotes or with air quotes around it. But like I know a lot of people who literally define themselves and their personality by like these are the things I don't like instead of like these are the things I really love. And it's so tiring to listen to people talk like that. And it's not interesting. It's like not interesting to have conversations about that. And I think yep. the same thing is happening in our communities, and it's making our communities tiring and uninteresting also.
0: Mm-hmm. Steve, I also have those jerkish tendencies. And I used to trash talk JavaScript all, all the time. And um, after reading Orin Shaw's Contempt Culture, I realized how unhealthy that was and how negativity isn't good for anyone. And what I will tend to say now is that, for example, Go doesn't make me as happy as Ruby makes me. Um, which is not a value judgment. It's rather a reflection on like what I enjoy or what suits my particular style. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And I guess just because we're all kind of looking at it from different vantage points, but I think what's been really interesting to me as I've come to arrive at spaces I feel comfortable, it is actually when I learned probably incorrectly early on in my programming career that if I didn't come with strong convictions, if I wasn't there with five things to say for every one line of code written, that I was doing something intrinsically wrong. And that kind of worldview, that like outward reflection to understand who I am as a programmer, that's a very precarious situation to be in. So it's very fascinating to hear your story from working with Rails to growing into observing what it is that truly makes you happy. And maybe it's sometimes the absence of wrong positions that actually allows us to feel more comfortable. I'm not sure if that's exactly giving justice to what you expressed. But I think that there's something there
1: that we could dig more into. You don't have to have a hot take on every single thing.
4: Yeah. (laughs) And it also comes with a recognition that because I'm also this way as a person, or as, as Coraline put it, destructive tendencies in this regard, it also means that I will occasionally slip up. And I need to either apologize for those things or just like figure out ways to catch myself from going into that thing. Like, I think it's also really tricky because criticism, I think, is important. It's a matter of like what the criticism is. So it's not about not ever saying that something is bad because there are bad things. But there's like the right way to go about it and the wrong way to go about it. And and like it's more complicated than just simply like nothing is ever wrong yeah this could be a whole nother gigantic long thing so I'll just leave it at that I guess
2: cool you mentioned earlier uh, about you chose to move to the Rust community I I think I'm paraphrasing you accurately here you chose to move to the Rust community because you felt like in the community you were in before it enabled behaviors that you didn't like and you wanted to move into a community where the sort of behaviors that it enabled were sort of the way you wanted to be I think that's really interesting for me because we know that humans mirror each other we mirror our emotions We mirror our behaviors and the way a community acts has a lot of influence on the way its members act You know when you see someone around you doing something you think it's okay. It becomes part of the norms So I guess my question is a how did you gain the sort of Metacognizance to realize that about yourself and to want to seek out a different environment and b). How do you build such an environment where the behaviors that are enabled are the ones that you want?
4: Yeah. I think this is a great sort of, re- this ties back into all the other things that we had. So this is an excellent, excellent, uh, uh, thing. Uh, one thing I'll say is that I didn't actually come to understand this until after it had happened. So like I made this move for a number of reasons and it only later sort of came to me that like, part of my underlying motivations were this aspect of things. And part of that was also like, I had a couple uh personal situations that caused me to reflect heavily on some things. And so that was also like part of not only the, the big move of things, but also like realizing this stuff was, there was like a, a thing that made me reconsider a lot of stuff. So, so that's like the, the metacognition part of it. And, and like, I also think that's, It's important. It's not like everything you do can ever be thought through, right? So sometimes it's just realizing why you did a thing after the fact. (laughs) In terms of building this kind of situation, I think that this goes back to our early discussions about intentionality and values building. So we sort of, in general, again, Rust is not perfect. We've had many flaws in this, just like anybody else, have tried to lead by example and bring other people on in leadership positions who share that sort of same Values that we hold. So, like, if somebody was like trash talking other people's projects all the time, we would not put them on a team or take them off a team if that was a thing that they were, you know, turned into that. And so I think that leading by example in that way, like, holds it together. And, you know, things are still relatively young. Uh, so there's always time for things to break. And there also is things are not perfect. But I think that the problems that I see in the Rust world are like an extremely toned down version of the things that I used to feel like happens in the Ruby world. So it's not like this person is being a massive jerk. It's like this person consistently gives unstructured criticism instead of structured criticism. It would be much more helpful if they would give structured criticism instead. And it's like a difference of degree. Like I I realize sometimes when I go back and look at historical things like i'll look at a github thread or a ruby thread or something and be like god i used to think this was normal like the problems i have today don't seem nearly as bad as the ones i had back then just because it's like uh it's not as intense but some of that just comes down to like doing it for the long haul like it's really like i said earlier you know a lot of this is about doing good things and not doing bad things and doing that over a sustained period of time is difficult so, you know, the way that I present myself on forums is extremely different than the way that I used to. And, you know, doing that over long periods of time is really the only way to, like, pay more than lip service to a value, I guess. I don't know. I guess that was a little rambly, but I hope that vaguely got into there. I don't. I guess I don't really know of any other way to do it other than, like, find other people who want to do it and do it together. And then eventually other people who agree with what you're doing will join up and you just keep including the people that, you know, share what you're trying to get done in the world. And I think that applies to everything, not just software.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you.
0: I think that's a great note to end on too, Steve. So at the at the end of our show, we'd like to do reflections and talk about the things that we found um, most interesting or most poignant about the conversations we've had and maybe some actions that we individually would like to take to enact the learning that we've had on the show. So we're going to move into reflections. Um, who would like to go first? I can go first.
1: I feel like the the theme that really struck me from this show was about leadership and how important it is to not put too much power in the hands of a few people. And I have thought about this before, particularly in terms of like the bus factor, which I was talking about recently with some non tech friends. Um, the bus factor is like if someone on your team got hit by a bus tomorrow, like how would your team be able to, you know, go on, and the idea is like one person cannot be like the one source of knowledge in your in your team or at your company. Um, I was talking about this with some non tech friends, and they were kind of horrified that I was talking about people getting hit by buses. They were, which also made me think of like this metaphor is so sort of normal to me that I was just like, yeah, well, what if? And they're like, that's a really that's a really mean thing to say about your
3: coworkers. Like, okay.
1: But it's not just in case, you know, something happens to someone or if they decide to leave. It's not just important in case, you know, something happens to someone or they decide to leave your organization, but it also kind of gives you and your community the power to remove people that are bad for your community. And I had never really thought about the bus factor in that sense about like, it's not just about security for our process, it's also about Like power to make sure that we have a community that we feel good about and we don't get stuck with contributors that make us feel uncomfortable. So That's what I was thinking about, I guess.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I can go next because actually uh, what I was going to say uh, is pretty similar, uh, I think, to what Jamie was saying. It's kind of funny, Steve, that you were talking about moving away from anarchism because I think we're sort of uh, ships in the night in that regard and I'm (laughs) starting to incorporate more anarchist thought into my own beliefs and one of the things that i struggle with a lot is how do you build systems of governance that don't depend for their success on the goodness of the rulers um you know you were talking about in rust you had a ruler who basically you know said i'm going to step down and and give away a lot of my power and that only happens if you have a good ruler right yep uh, so how do you build systems of governance that are resilient to evil rulers and don't depend on their success for, th- for their success on having good people, you know, being lucky enough to have good people in in leadership positions? Because you eventually won't.
0: Lorena, do you have thoughts?
3: Yeah. So I've been rewatching Star Trek Next Generation and the whole part with the Q continuum, you know, being both judge and jury and Jean-Luc Picard saying, who are you to judge us? But I think there's something very real in that and a big part of the conversation and something I really appreciated that was brought up today was how do we learn to speak with others in a language that is inviting and creates a safe space for us all, right? The idea that we might have strong ideas and convictions and beliefs, but maybe because of, you know, loaded jargon or maybe falling into patterns of your community that could exclude others without knowing that. And then how do you hold yourself to a higher standard to try to create that that kind of space when you yourself try to both observe the community and make sure things don't happen, but also preventing yourself from being that person who might be. Reifying some of those structures. So I guess for me, that that, that's always a idea of, you know, learning to reflect on your own, being mindful of your own role and how these things can unfold. So if it means that you're on open source and you're thinking about, well, how am I participating in this? Am I here for the right intentions? Am I actually working on this product because I care about it? The idea that, you know, if you're in open source just for the sake of being in open source, is that actually the right decision for you? Or, you know, as we heard the story today, if you develop a kind of internal guideline for how you give back to open source, then you can understand and check in with yourself to both respect your personal space, but also respect the community at large.
0: Those are great points. um, One of the things I got out of the conversation is the notion of intentionality. And it sort of touches on the importance of establishing values around an open source project, leading by example, which I thought was a great point. And then um, figuring out how to communicate community values to new members of the community and i think all of that ties into this theme of value resilience how do you maintain those values over time as leadership changes as members of the community change and i think you have to be intentional about those things otherwise you're going to you're going to drift into chaos steve what are your thoughts
4: i think that while this was a thing that i gave an answer to it was also a thing that is leading me to more questions so the question about like jargon not not about jargon but was about this inaccessibility of of much of leftist thought is a thing that has been rolling around in the back of my brain and having that question asked lit some things up that allowed me to give that answer but i definitely am going to be continuing to think about so like Again, with this idea of understanding things after they happen, I've been very interested in some people's efforts recently to do things like discounted groceries drives or like Feed the People programs and like Food Not Bombs and these kinds of like inherently accessible political organizing because it's not actually about like what book you read, but it's about you need to eat some food. Let's make this happen. And so thinking about that as like a non-exclusionary politics is very interesting to me and probably something I'm going to think about more and also trying to figure out how to not always my brain draws connections between things. And then I like to explain what those connections are. So often I'll bring jargon into a conversation because something will remind me of a book I read and then I get excited about it. And I'm like, oh, there was this book, but that is an attitude that can be exclusionary. And that's something I'm going to have to think about.
2: I also don't know how you balance that with what's essentially anti-intellectualism. I mean, one of the reasons that I often mention books is not so that I, at least in my mind, it's not so that I appear well-read. It's so that people know that I'm not the only person who's ever thought of this. And there is, in fact, a place you can go if you want to learn more about the thing I'm talking about.
4: Yeah, I've totally had people recommend, like, mention a book and then I go and read it. And then I read everything else the author's ever written because I'm like, this is really great. But yeah, that's like a contextual thing. It's not always perceived that way. So I would actually like to know what the book
2: was that you wouldn't tell us earlier.
4: Uh, That was specifically uh, Nietzsche in, uh, I totally forget which book specifically it is, but the concept of re-sentiment and master-slave morality.
0: Awesome. I think we all have some work to do and we all have some, um, we're all going to need some time to process. This has been a wonderful conversation, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, that's um, great.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: This episode marks, like I said, the 50th episode of the podcast. We have been producing this podcast for about a year now, and we're looking forward to more years of serving our community and bringing interesting conversations to you. So thanks, Steve, for being a part of that. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will talk to you again very soon.